Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's on Dan and I are so proud to bring to you this cardio obstetric series led by series co-chairs, Dr. Natalie Stokes, CardioNerds Ambassador from UPMC, and Dr. Sonia Shaw, Ambassador from UT Southwestern, and produced in collaboration with Women Heart. Why cardio obstetrics? Well, because it's important and relevant to anyone taking care of women who are, may become, or have been pregnant as cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of pregnancy-related death. So CardioNerds, you've got to pay attention to this one. In order to raise awareness, we've put together this fun, sometimes sobering, but comprehensive curriculum. So get ready, folks, because this CardioNerds Cardio Obstetrics cruise will dock at several ports along the way. Normal pregnancy physiology, hypertensive disorders, arrhythmia, valvular heart disease, anticoagulation, pulmonary hypertension, heart failure, iridopathies, coronary disease, critical care, fourth trimester, racial disparities in care, interventional considerations, patient perspectives, including from women heart champions, and more. We thank you for subscribing to CardiNerds. Consider supporting our mission to democratize cardiovascular education by rating us on your favorite podcast app, donating using Patreon, showing your support with CardiNerds swag, or sharing why you hashtag chose cardiology on Twitter, tagging at CardiNerds. Your support goes a long way in making this possible. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The speakers have no relevant disclosures, and there is no commercial or in-kind support for activity. Be sure to claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. Now, I know you guys are all enjoying your heart-healthy cruise buffet, but it's time for our first port of call, Normal Pregnancy Physiology, with fellow lead Dr. Danny Kruziat from MGH and cardio OB guru Dr. Garima Sharma from Johns Hopkins. But before we talk, enjoy this important message from CardioNerd's ally, mentor, and advisor, Dr. Sharon Hayes. Thanks for tuning in to the Cardio Nerds Cardio Obstetrics Series led by co-chairs and fellows in training, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shah, and brought to you in collaboration with Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. This is Dr. Sharon Hayes. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic, where I founded and maintain an active practice in the Mayo Clinic Women's Heart Clinic. I've also been privileged to serve as a mentor and advisor to Cardio Nerds. With our partner, Women Heart, I have served as a patient advocate and an advisor for well over 20 years. What is Women Heart? It was founded by and for women. Women Heart focuses on serving the millions of women living with or at risk of heart disease, the leading cause of death in women. Women Heart is dedicated to advancing women's heart health through advocacy, community education, and supports the nation's only patient support network for women living with heart disease. As medical director of Women Heart Science and Leadership Symposium for Women with Heart Disease, Each year, I have the privilege of working with Women Heart to train a new class of women living with heart disease from across the country to become community educators and support group leaders. Since 2002, Women Heart has trained over 1,000 Women Heart champions. Women Heart's Scientific Advisory Council is comprised of renowned cardiologists, including many on this program, and offers membership in its National Hospital Alliance, a group of hospitals committed to providing gender-sensitive cardiology care and amplifying the patient voice in their care and treatment. This series is important to me personally since my clinical and research interests include sex and gender-based cardiology, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, health equity, and also increasing the participation of women and minoritized people in medical research. Through this lens, I know both how important and also how under-emphasized cardioobstetrics has been. Cardiology has been late to own cardio-OB as a concept and important sub-subspecialty for us as cardiologists and for the women under our care. This series aims to change that. Why? Because cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of maternal mortality. For instance, in my own area of interest, SCAD, it may be considered rare, but it is the number one cause of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarction. Second, even if we only utilized what we know now, if that knowledge was truly and fully translated to practice, most cardiovascular disease and its complications related to pregnancy would be detected better managed, and often prevented. Third, we have a huge knowledge gap. Women have not been included in medical research, much less reproductive and pregnant women. 
So the evidence we have to diagnose and treat and predict outcomes is often weak or even absent. And if we think we have insufficient data for women as a whole, there is truly a chasm to cross for as evidence to optimally care for women of color, particularly African-American women, whose maternal mortality is two to four times higher than that of white women. So some of you might be thinking, I already am, or I plan to be a cardiologist. I will not be delivering babies. So why should I, as a true cardio nerd, pay attention to or even care about this topic? Well, I'm just going to stop you there. Half the population is women. The vast majority of women in our society become mothers at some point in their life. And presumably, all of you had one. As a physician and cardiologist, even if you do not see pregnant patients in your practice, the role of pregnancy in predicting women's future risk of cardiovascular disease is a critical fund of knowledge that is rapidly evolving. You will need it. And as the science builds, specific to Cardio B, more attention will be paid to cardiovascular risk management in the preconception phase, especially among women with known heart disease. And as a cardiologist, you will be called upon to address complications that occur during pregnancy and increasingly to be asked to assess and proactively reduce long-term cardiovascular risk after pregnancy. Our goal for this series, raise awareness about the intersection between pregnancy and cardiovascular issues and improve your comfort around caring for women who have had or are at risk for cardio-OB problems. You do not have to be an expert to know how and when to engage the cardio-OB heart team. All you cardio nerds need to pay attention. And as you take advantage of the medical expertise of the participants in this series, I hope you will also take advantage of the expertise that your patients can provide you, either individually or through Women Heart's trained patient advocates, its champions. I have learned much and have often been humbled by the knowledge, advocacy, bravery, and persistence of women with heart disease and women heart champions and many of my patients. Be open to those insights and learning. To learn more about Women Heart and how it can support your women patients or to help you do so, or to offer to volunteer or donate, go to womenheart.org. Thank you and enjoy the Cardio OB series. Hey, Cardio Nerds. I'm Natalie Stokes, a cardiology fellow at UPMC. I'm thrilled to be joining Amit and Dan and my colleague Sonia Shaw to help co-host the Cardio Obstetric series of Cardio Nerds. We're going to have 12 fantastic episodes with experts and leaders in the field who have really paved the way for those of us who have an interest in Cardio OB. To start the series off, we have an amazing episode today focusing on the basics of normal pregnancy physiology and what that means for the heart. So I'm excited to introduce Danny Cruciat, who's currently an advanced echocardiographic fellow at MGH with an interest in women's health and cardioobstetrics specifically. She's originally from Venezuela, attended NYU for medical school, Brigham and Women's for internal medicine residency, and has been at MGH for her cardiology and advanced fellowships. Welcome, Danny. Thanks so much for having me, everybody, and thanks for the kind introduction, Natalie. Today, I actually have the absolute pleasure of introducing our expert, Dr. Garima Sharma. Dr. Sharma is actually an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology and Department of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She completed her medical training in Mumbai, India, at Lamkaya Tilak Municipal Medical College and General Hospital. After we were very lucky to recruit her to come over to Philly, to Temple University Medical Center, where she completed both her residency and her cardiovascular disease fellowship. Dr. Sharma is an absolute rock star in the world of women's cardiovascular health, and she has quickly become a leader in this growing and exciting field of cardiopsychiatrics. As many of you may know, Dr. Sharma has co-authored the AHA scientific statement on cardiovascular considerations in caring for pregnant patients. And she's also authored a training document on how trainees like you and me can gain further education in the growing field of cardiopsychics. Perhaps we can actually convince her to let her in on her little secrets to her success by the end of our episodes. It's our absolute pleasure to have you on board with us today, Dr. Sharma. Oh my God. Thank you so much, guys. This is fantastic. Cardio Nerds is a total, total bomb. It, it really is amazing to be here with all of you and to contribute to the education, and more than anything, camaraderie of cardiology made it so much easier to be able to just listen in and learn on the go. So thank you to you all for um, having me here. And thank you for considering Cardio B as one of the important series that you're highlighting. 
very, very pumped to be here. Thank you. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much. You know, like people don't realize how you've really helped me and Dan and supported us and encouraged us with all of this from the very beginning with your positive energy and words of support. So this is so meaningful for both of us to have you on. And Dan wishes he could be here. He's busy with his family, but really, really grateful for uh, all of your support. And just thinking about everything you've been through, everything you've done, as an international medical graduate, yours really is a story of great achievement. We've enjoyed reading your article titled The Assimilation of International Medical Graduates into the Cardiovascular Workforce, A Tale of Two Countries, in Jack Case Reports from March 2020. And the article began with the following quote from Martin Luther King Jr. We must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. So as an international medical graduate yourself, can you tell us a little bit about your story and what this quote means for you? Sure. Thank you uh, for asking that question and starting off this series with that, because, you know, you don't know where you're going until you know where you've been. And for me, my story has been a story of patience and perseverance and not taking no for an answer and finding out the gaps between the trees. Because as an international medical graduate, my story has been a real uphill battle. But it's been, it's been very much helped by a lot of very generous and very kind and very helpful people, amazing mentors and sponsors. And so I look back and I look back with tremendous gratitude for being able to get to where I am. That code really is, is important because, and it's not just for international medical graduates, it's for everybody. Lots of times in life, you think things are going to turn out a certain way, and then you may be disappointed. And actually, life may be full of small disappointments. Uh, but I think what is really important is not lose hope. And because there's nothing like a false hope, hope is hope. And I, I, and I hope that, uh, you know, people continue hoping because um, that really gets you through the tough times. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for sharing um, those thoughts with us. And I know it's something that all of us can really take away from, from people like you in terms of thinking about our own careers and our paths and obstacles and how we can get past that. So thank you very much. Um, so we are so pumped to be taking a journey with you through the normal physiology of pregnancy during today's episode. This is what Betty would consider the ultimate stress test for women. In order to get our hormones all going, why don't we start with a quick game of fact or myth as a quick preview to some of the highlights that we hope to review with you today. So I'll start us off with our first one. In normal pregnancy, women double their cardiac output to up to 10 liters by the end of their second trimester. How can women sustain this level of constant physical activity for the entirety of their pregnancy? It sounds exhausting. <laughs> it is. Uh, but, you know, if anybody is going to do it, it's going to be the women, right? Because, I mean, I would think that there is a natural ability to be able to sustain a lot of stress. You know, in terms of cardiac output, it starts increasing pretty early. So it's such a semi-fact that it increases by about 50%, starts very early, about five weeks of gestation and stays up uh, right until pregnancy and postpartum timeframe for about doing your vaginal delivery. So it's definitely a stress test. It's definitely that women are strong and they can sustain this. But Cardiac physiology is helped by a lot of different changes in cardiac anatomy to be able to sustain 40 weeks of volume overload. So does more blood volume necessarily equal higher intracardiac pressures in pregnancy? Factor myth, an elevated JVP is a normal finding in pregnancy. Yeah, that's a great question. A mildly elevated JVP, maybe about, about five centimeters is actually seen in normal pregnancy. Recognize that this is a state of volume overload. Um, there is an increase in plasma volume by about 75% and also an increase in cardiac output by about, let's say, 50% throughout pregnancy. And if you're carrying a twin gestation, if it's a twin pregnancy, then you can add another 15, 20% to that. So there is increased blood volume, there's increased plasma volume, there's also increased plasma flow to the kidneys, and that increases your GFR and increases proteinuria. So I think when you're looking at a pregnant patient, it's very important to have the normal physiologic changes in the back of your mind, because a lot of times physical examination really is something that you see in pregnancy may be totally normal for that pregnant state. So I would say definitely a fact. 
Okay, so this next one is for the echocardiographer in me. Factor myth, Dr. Sharma. Up to 40% of normal pregnancies can have a pericardial fusion by echocardiogram. Sort of a fact. So by about third trimester, most pregnancies, I'd say 40 to 50% of the pregnancies would have trace amount of pericardial fusion, which is considered completely physiologic. You may even actually see about 15 to 20% of the pregnancies have about mild or trivial amount of pericardial effusion, even in their second trimester. So if you see a pericardial effusion in a person who is pregnant, very 36, 37 weeks, I mean, or late trimester, it's not entirely worrisome if there are no significant other changes and clinically the patient appears to be okay. So definitely a fact. So before we jump into the rest of the conversation, let's put the entire Cardio OB series into context and establish why we're taking the time to have this conversation. Maternal mortality is on the rise, and the United States now ranks 64th in the world for maternal mortality. Oh, wait, Danny, you wrote the script for this. This must have been a typo, right? I'm sure you meant fourth in the world. Yeah, so, the, so so maternal mortality is on the rise, and the United States ranks fourth in the world for maternal mortality. Actually, it depends on what you're comparing it to. 64th in the world for maternal mortality is actually correct, because if you're looking at the developed nation or the industrialized nation, it's number one. But if you're looking at the entire world in entirety, United States is probably 64, which is really bad because of the amount of time and effort and money that we spend on prevention, health education, and on healthcare, right? Uh, so I think that may, be, that may be correct. I mean, there's a lot of other under, underdeveloped nations or developing nations or really non-industrialized nations that have much, much, much higher maternal mortality. But the fact that the United States is actually on the map is in itself a, a pretty bad state. Wow. So definitely an important conversation to have. So fact or myth, Black and white women are at equal risk for maternal mortality. Total myth. Uh, completely untrue. They are not. There are several, several reasons for the disparity. There is a huge disparity between maternal outcomes and pregnancy-related deaths between uh, non-Hispanic Blacks, Hispanics, uh, Native Americans and Alaskans, and the white Caucasian population in the United States. This is well known. The disparities haven't changed in the last several decades. In fact, they have worsened. Um, there's also significant rural and urban disparity in maternal mortality, where rural mortality is much higher than urban mortality. There are many, many different reasons for it as well, mostly because of structural racism, social determinants of health and how they impact health status of the birthing population, largely because of the change in the birthing population, the prevalence of cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, that lends itself to complications during pregnancy, which is why this is such an important conversation to have and keep into the context of whatever we're doing in cardiobstetrics. Because a country like ours, with our resources, should never have a maternal mortality, which is highest among all the developed or industrialized nations. We are the highest. And just to give you some metrics, in the last two decades, it has gone up. Our maternal mortality was about 7 per 100,000 life births in 1989, and now it's about 17. And it's really steadily gone up. And there are many factors for it. And one of the main factors, and a lot of naysayers may say, well, that's because, you know, the CDC and the health metrics that are looking at national statistics actually made the death certificates have the pregnancy checkbox. So before that, we weren't really even catching the amount of pregnant women that died. And so maybe that's what's led to this quote unquote false increase. And now we're just getting better metrics and better, we have better way of analyzing deaths and why they happen. We have maternal mortality review committees and all of that are impacting our numbers. And so they're falsely alarming. But the truth of the matter is that that's not true. If you really look at the prevalence of cardiovascular risk factors, you look at advanced maternal age, you look at the contribution of existing chronic hypertension, obesity, diabetes in the birthing population, all of which has tremendously increased and alarmingly increased in the last two decades. And and that, in fact, is one of the reasons that the birthing population in the U.S. is sick. Dr. Sharma, thank you for putting that into context for us. I think the statistics are themselves really alarming, and we're really lucky to have pioneers like you who are leading this field, and more importantly, just helping to increase awareness about 
at the rise of maternal mortality and more importantly, the strategies that we can all take to really try and keep this from becoming worse. So thank you very much. So we will go ahead and move on with our case presentation. I have to say many cardiologists, including myself, I think are intimidated by the thought of taking care of two people in one body, as I think we are already just so complex enough as it is. How a woman's body really adapts to support another human being remains one of the most amazing marvels of life for cardio OB files like me. So why don't we start with a real case to guide us through our journey, or more like the wild roller coaster ride, through a woman's cardiovascular physiology in pregnancy. I think if we know what is normal, that will allow us to become better at identifying when something may be amiss. So let's pretend that you are referred a 35-year-old female with no known prior cardiac history. She has limited antenatal care, and she's currently 24 weeks pregnant with her first pregnancy. And she is referred to you, Dr. Sharma, for a general cardiology consult from her primary care provider for exertional shortness of breath and palpitations. Great case to start us off, Danny. This is definitely something I feel like we see in the clinic all the time. So Dr. Sharma, let's talk physiology. Starting in the first trimester of pregnancy, what physiologic changes are the first to occur and why? And as you mentioned before, the body has a lot of adaptive responses. What are those? Perfect. This is a great question to start off with. And, you know, for those that are listening in, do not fear the pregnant patient. <laughs> the pregnant patient is actually going through a very normal physiologic process in their life. And I think we need to recognize that whatever we see normally is normal for that woman. And the more we're familiar with it, the less we're going to fear it. And so starting off with normal physiological changes. So several of them. And I'm going to break them down into system-wide so that when you see things, you kind of know what they may stand for and what could be the potential abnormalities. So let's start off with the cardiovascular system because that's what we do. So first of all, the SVR, the systemic vascular resistance, starts decreasing very early on in pregnancy by about, let's say, fifth week, really potentiated by estrogen-induced vasodilatation, starts pretty early. And about 2024 20, weeks, the SVR has decreased about 35 to 40% baseline. So there is a systemic vasodilatation that we see in order to compensate for flow. We also see an increase in cardiac output, which also starts around the same time. And by about 34 weeks, the cardiac output has increased by about 50%, kind of stays around that time frame for much of the last trimester. In addition to that, there is, remember, increase in plasma volume that we talked a little bit about, anywhere between 50 to 75%. And so those things are important to sort of keep in mind. Also important to know that there is increased sympathetic activity in women, and uh, that can relate to an increase in resting heart rate. And anytime you see a woman who is maybe borderline tachycardic, that's not something to fear. That's a normal physiologic response. You're increasing the cardiac output. You're primarily relying on stroke volume for the first few months, and then an increase in heart rate. In fact, the data says that most of the initial increase in cardiac output is increased increase in stroke volume, and then the later half of the pregnancy is because of increase in heart rate. So if you see somebody with a slight tachycardia, maybe slightly lower blood pressure than usual, having a little bit of flushed appearance, um, maybe gaining some weight, that's fine. That is normal. Also recognize that along with the cardiovascular system, there are other systems that are also increasing their value. And so they're, they're also sort of helping the woman out. So the respiratory system, there's an increase in metabolic rate and increased oxygen consumption. And actually, there's a mild compensated respiratory alkalosis. So this mild feeling of breathlessness during pregnancy towards the very end is kind of normal. You know, if you see if, if a pregnant is a little breathless with ambulation, and if it has steadily increased, and then physical examination is otherwise normal, I wouldn't worry too much about it. In addition to that, uh, like we talked about, the renal system, increased plasma volume, increased GFR, mild proteinuria, that's fine. If you have significant proteinuria and the patient is hypertensive, then that's a pathological straight of preeclampsia. So that's important to recognize. Um, in terms of the hypercoagulous state, now pregnancy is a hypercoagulous state. You are increasing plasma volume and red cell mass, but you're also increasing the coagulation factors. You're also increasing protein C. You're also compressing on the inferior vena cava with the gravid uterus. So there is some metastasis and you may see some varicosities in the 
in the feet. And if you see that, that's not uh, alarming if the if the uterus is fairly gravid. And much of what I care about is the lipid metabolism and the glucose metabolism and recognize that increased triglycerides, increased total cholesterol by 50%, increased LDL by 50%, and decreased HDL is kind of seen start towards the first trimester. However, if you have significant increase in hyper uh, in triglycerides, a significant increase in total cholesterol during pregnancy, more than 50, more than 50% about in, in very, very high numbers. And that's something that you really have to follow up postpartum because you may have uncovered or unlocked some sort of a familial process. But lipid metabolism is extremely important for the fetal development and the fetal development of the fetal brain development. So that's important. There's also a mild increase in insulin resistance, a mild diabetogenic state, but it's also important to recognize that a very full-blown diabetes or failing your glucose tolerance test in your second trimester is very abnormal. Wow. Thanks, Dr. Sharma. It's just fascinating to think about all of these incredible hemodynamic, hematologic, metabolic changes and adaptations that one goes through during the course of pregnancy. And not only is pregnancy itself a marathon, but it sounds like labor and delivery is, is definitely no walk in the park either in terms of cardiovascular system. And I, I think back to the birth of our first son, Dhruv, when the whole labor and delivery process was like at least like a two-day affair, you know, and just like... <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've always obviously thought very highly of my wife, but watching her go through pregnancy, labor and delivery, and then ultimately balancing breastfeeding and being a fellow, it's just like, like the way it's just like, it's just through the roof in terms of respect and adoration and just, you know, like how much strength that whole process involves. Yeah. But going back to the labor and delivery, what are the physiologic changes that occur during spontaneous vaginal delivery in the immediate postpartum period? Yeah, no, this is a great question. And it's actually really important to understand in the context of patients who have existing cardiovascular disease, right? Because you are laboring, you are pushing, bearing down, you are both solving, you are like, not only is there increased pain, even though you have epidural, urine contractions are horrible, having gone through them. And they are squeezing. Every time you squeeze and you, pre- you bear, bear down, uh, you are actually increasing your cardiac output between those contractions. And so there is a constant balance that the heart has to go through. You're increasing your heart rate, you're valsalvering, you're, you know, you're bearing down, there is pain. So there is a lot of uh, very, very constant hemodynamic changes happening in the pregnant woman. And during labor, the cardiac output will increase by 30% and then the active stage of labor. And recognize that most problems happen while laboring or immediately after laboring because the uterus then starts to expel placental blood and, and, and uterine blood. So there's an auto circulation of about 300 to 500 cc's of uterine blood back into the systemic circulation. And so if you already have underlying compromised cardiovascular system, especially left-sided lesions or underlying cardiac shunts, or you have eyes and mangers, hopefully not, but if you do, or you have aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis, that's going to really be a significant challenge. And that's also when women tend to decompensate. Wow. I can only imagine what it's like to actually go through a spontaneous vaginal delivery. I'd have to say a bolus of up to 500 cc every couple minutes per contraction. That sounds like every cardiologist's worst nightmare. <laughs> so now that we know what we expect to happen in a normal pregnancy, why don't we come back to our new console that we are seeing together in clinic, Dr. Sharma. So when we talked to her a little bit more, further history reveals that she kept an intermittent shortness of breath with some fast-paced walking or when she's climbing more than two flights of stairs. And she tried to stop drinking um, regular coffee because she was experiencing some fluttering in her chest which has now sort of incidentally improved. She has no known personal or family history of cardiac disease. Um, And these are sort of the vital signs that are taken on triage in your clinic. She has a pulse rate of 86 beats per minute. Her blood pressure is 100 over 60 diastolic. And her oxygen saturation is 99% on room air. Her weight that day in clinic is 135 pounds, and you note in her chart that her pre-pregnancy weight was around 117 pounds. When you move on to your physical exam, you notice that in your cardiac exam, she has prominent pulsations, but a normal jugular venous pressure. She has a regular rate and rhythm with occasional regular beats, and you're able to pick up a soft, maybe one to two out of six systolic ejection murmur at the right sternal border. 
and a two out of six holocephalic murmur at the apex. She has an S3 gallop, and you notice that she has no pedal edema. So I know this is a lot to um, digest, but Dr. Sharma, let's crack into the pertinent findings of the exam. First, are there really any other vital parts of the exam, which we missed, which you would focus on when seeing a patient such as this in your cardio B clinic? And second, we've already discussed a lot of the physiological changes of pregnancy. How are some of these sort of mirrored or manifested in our patient's exam? Absolutely. So that's, that's really key to understand because once you know what normal physiology is, then you can kind of sort of anticipate what the normal signs of volume overload may look like. And then you can also sort of anticipate once what the normal volume uh, overload signs look like, what are the abnormal signs? And, and so it's important to sort of tease it out into what's normal, what's abnormal. So let's start off with what is normal and what should be normal. So we talked a little bit about cardiac output going up and SVR going down and PVR going down and plasma volume going up. So how may that look in a patient who is otherwise pregnant? Um, you notice her blood pressure is on the lower side, 100 over 60 millimeters of mercury. That's fine for her. It may not be fine for somebody else, but for her, it's okay. She's starting okay. I'd like to point out that she has gained about, let's say, 15 pounds. She's sort of mid-pregnancy. And there, is, there are metrics for normal weight gain in pregnancy, and she seems to be right in the middle. So it's not abnormal weight gain. She's not gained more than 25 to 35 pounds already throughout 40 weeks. It's just supposed to be normal gestational weight gain. And if you have an obese uh, lady who gets pregnant, then their gestational weight gain tends to be slightly on the lower side. And so for her, it seems to be okay. So she's not someone who is grossly overweight. So looking for signs of volume overload, recognize that in a normal pregnancy, you should find signs of volume overload. And so mildly elevated JVP greater than about maybe five centimeters in somebody like her would not be very alarming because there is an increase in cardiac output and increased plasma flow that manifests itself with brisk rotted upstrokes, which you may be able to see. You may also be able to hear a very soft you know, systolic ejection murmur in the left sternal border. These are flow murmurs, fairly common in pregnancy, will go away postpartum. You may find a little bit of a pedal edema in these women because it is dependent. You may find some varicose wanes. You may find an S3. Sometimes women can have, towards the later part of their pregnancy in the third trimester, slightly increase uh, flow in their breasts because they're preparing for lactation. You may actually hear that. We call it the mammary souffle. And so you may actually, fairly common to see it here in S3, especially later trimester, 50%, unless the patient has no other signs and symptoms, wouldn't really worry too much about it. But if you hear abnormal sounds, so generally diastolic murmurs are not very common in pregnancy. And if you hear it, especially in the left sternal border or in the apex, and you're hearing a loud S2 or P2, or you're, you have some other clinical signs that are worrisome that should really alert you towards getting additional information and additional biomarker testing. So the JVP exam is an art as it is for everyone, but we'd love to hear about your tips and tricks to taking a look at the JVP in pregnancy. What is unique about the jugular venous pulsations and pressure in pregnancy? Yeah, great question. So I, I already alluded to some of this and I, I'll try to tie it in. This is a person who obviously has a gravid uterus and their uterus is growing and, the, and, and it's pushing up on the IVC and it's going to also push up on the diaphragm. And it's, you're going to have you know, try to examine this patient laying down or maybe sitting up in a slightly at a 40 degree angle. So you may end up actually seeing a JVP, which is five centimeters slightly above the clavicle. And if the clinically the lady does not have any other sign, she's not acutely short of breath, she's not pedal edema, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Keep in mind that JVP can be mildly elevated in normal pregnancy without any cardiac uh, problems. Now, it's not typical for a non-pregnant woman to have a JVP if that's, that's high. So if she happens to be a patient that you've seen in a non-pregnant state, then sort of helps put things um, in perspective as well. So it's important to sort of put the JVP that you see in, in clinical context of what's happening. The patient also recognize that if you hear a two by six murmur and you hear by a, a systolic injection murmur, then I think you see a slight JVP in a gravid person that's all within normal range. 
Thank you, Dr. Sharma. So we've actually covered a lot of ground from what happens just a couple weeks after conception to all the way up to labor and delivery. So before we move on um, with our case we're seeing today in clinic, we want to play a quick round of curbside consults with you, our experts. What we'll do is we will present a two-liner and we will ask you to decide based on limited information how you really feel about the consult based on your expertise and your level of concern. So your options will be either one, no biggie, meaning you're not really worried. This is a thank you for this interesting consult. Everything's okay. Or you can pick number two, which means right away. These are the times that you're so thankful that your colleagues called because you think that this person really needs your expertise and and your help. Sounds good. I must say, though, a huge disclaimer. There's going to be a huge bias in my answers. It's going to be a referral bias. (laughs) You never turn a consult away. But I think... I think it's important to recognize that there are different levels of cardiac disease in pregnancy, and some women are really sick. I say this with with all being there and having done that and being pregnant myself. It's not normal for a pregnant woman to be admitted, right? They they're they shouldn't be admitted to the hospital. So, in fact, I always say to my my fellows and I, my trainees and people around me that please don't get upset if you get MFM or we'll be calling you about sinus tack and don't get upset when you get a page about a PVC in a pregnant woman. They're doing this because they recognize that it is not normal for a pregnant woman to be admitted. And if they're in the hospital, there's something else that's abnormal in their very normal physiologic state um, that requires attention. So all we can do is be good colleagues. Okay, with that, let the cardio OB games begin. Let's start with our first curbside consult. (laughs) Paige reads, please call, appreciate your thoughts. 32-year-old female, 18 weeks pregnant, shortness of breath with bilateral swelling to mid-calves, loud P2, prominent diastolic murmur at the apex. Dr. Sharma no biggie or right away? Right away. Oh my God. Uh, where is this patient? And can we just fly? Because this person has some real abnormal findings, loud P2, uh, not normal bilateral lower extremity, swelling mid-calf, not normal, prominent diastolic murmur at the apex, probably describing an Austin Flynn murmur of severe AR. Well, I'm not sure what, but a patient needs to be seen, stat. And I have to say, whoever sent you that page, I've got to commend them on their physical exam. Exactly. I don't remember the like, <laughs> last time I got a page. Loud P2, prominent. I was like, are you a cardiologist? Like, yeah, <laughs> you do cardiology three? I want to be that MFM because uh, yeah. that's fantastic. So you're not off the hook just yet, Dr. Sherba. We still have an hour before uh, your call ends. So, and there we go. The next one just rolls in. It says, please call. Uh, worried about new OB patient. It's a 37-year-old, 28 weeks pregnant, limited prenatal care, no cardiac symptoms, soft systolic ejection click and murmur at the base. Uh, father with a history of uh, bicuspid aortic valve, status post aortic valve replacement, and uh, ascending aortic root replacement. So Dr. Sharma, what are your thoughts on this presentation? No biggie or right away? So uh, really recognize that any patient should be seen. I'm not sure this patient really requires to be seen right away. I think perhaps you may be describing the soft systolic ejection click murmur of mitral valve prolapse, which, you know, if you have somebody who's 28 weeks pregnant and has not had any limited prenatal care, so no one really knows if the systolic click has been present or absent before that, really has no cardiac symptoms, perhaps doesn't need to be seen right away, but probably should also be seen because you never lose the chance of giving them some pre-pregnancy or antenatal counseling. And this guy, this lady has a history of parental history of bicuspid aortic valve with an AVR and, and ascending aortic root replacement. And we know that bicuspid valves can be familial. So although you're not describing that murmur, still probably needs to be seen at some point. All right. One more for you, Dr. Sharma. You receive a call from your colleague just two minutes before you're starting your vacation or staycation in COVID times, Uh, but nevertheless. (laughs) 
Hi, Dr. Sharma. This patient is a bit outside my wheelhouse and would appreciate running the case by you. Could you see her soon? I have a 22-year-old female, 34 weeks pregnant, progressive shortness of breath, admitted with heart failure overnight to the OB floor. First pregnancy, uncomplicated thus far. She has an elevated JVP RV heave, and we did order an echo, but it's pending. No biggie or right away? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> we've all had those pages that go off right before you're about to check out of the hospital. But do you have a, a, a code pager? <laughs> because I think that should go off right now. This patient likely has RV failure. She has RV heave. She came in with heart failure. She's got an elevated JVP. She probably has pulmonary hypertension and has been complaining of progressive shortness of breath. And, and I think absolutely stat right away needs to be seen. And I would take the echo myself out there to do it, but I think it really definitely needs to be done. My guess is all these cases and pages are not too different from a day in the life of Dr. Sharma, the cardio B expert at Hopkins. So before we get carried away, why don't we get back to our case that we're seeing in clinic. As a quick refresher for us all, we were seeing a 35-year-old female with no prior cardiac history who is at the end of her second trimester and is struggling a bit with exertional dyspnea and palpitation. So in clinic, after we obtained her vital signs and examined her, we also got an electrocardiogram, which showed normal sinus rhythm with infrequent premature atrial contractions and left axis deviation with some nonspecific T-wave inversion. We um, rushed to the bedside with our bedside echo, which we had available in clinic, and it demonstrated that it looked like she had a pretty normal left ventricular cavity size normal wall thickness, and normal sort of global LV and RV systolic function. We did notice that it seemed like she had bileaflet mitral valve prolapse with some mild mitral regurgitation. And when we took a look at her tricuspid regurgitant velocity, we estimated that her right ventricular systolic pressure was about 22 millimeters of mercury. And we also noted that she had a little bit of a trace circumferential pericardial effusion. So in the context of our discussion thus far, why don't we take a moment to discuss a little bit about the role of cardiac testing in pregnancy and how its interpretation may actually differ. So Dr. Sharma, does EKG interpretation vary with normal pregnancy? And what are sort of the most common normal, sort of quote-unquote normal findings? Absolutely. I so appreciate this question because many of these consults that we see on otherwise Normal, healthy pregnant ladies are because of a slight abnormality in their EKG during pregnancy. And so it's really, really important uh, to know what are the normal changes in pregnancy that may revert back to the pre-pregnancy state once the lady is not pregnant anymore. So remember, uh, we talked about physiological adaptations of pregnancy. We also talked about the fact that there may be some spatial rearrangement of what's happening in the chest cavity and the abdominal cavity, obviously. We talked about diaphragmatic changes and diaphragm being raised. We also probably should spend maybe a couple of minutes talking about what happens on the normal echo, because I think understanding what happens in the normal echo would help us understand what happens on a normal EKG. So there is remodeling of their left ventricle. There is increase in left ventricle mass by about 50% as, we, as the lady gets pregnant. There's also increase in RV mass and a slight amount of ventricular hypertrophy. Also, the chambers dilate a little bit. There can be trivial MR and trivial TR and trivial PR, not so much AR. So when you're seeing these changes, also keep in mind that along with that, there may be some apical displacement of left ventricle. The apex may be a little bit more displaced. So when we see that, what does that mean on the surface EKG, right? So the resting heart rate may be a little higher. We talked about maybe 15, 20% higher resting heart rate. Important to know that. So if you see slight sinus tachycardia, don't be too worried. Go back to see a pre-pregnancy EKG if it was not tachycardic or maybe mildly tachycardic and no big problem. Because of the changes in the left ventricle, there may be slight leftward axis deviation. You may end up seeing a little bit of some occasional PVCs. Sinus tachycardia and PVCs are fairly common. This is because of an increase in sympathetic activity. And so you see that. You may also see Q waves because of the spatial rearrangement and how the axis of the heart may change. You may actually see mild, small, not pathologic Q waves, but small, tiny Q waves in 2, 3 AVF, sometimes B4, B5, B6. And so we see that. And also some flattening of the T-wave uh, or some mild T-wave inversions. 
if the patient is asymptomatic, is not volume overloaded, is not complaining of shortness of breath, otherwise feels well, blood pressure is fine, then it's, it's sort of something that we see in the context of what's happening physiologically. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma. Going through the nuances and subtleties of what's normal in pregnancy, it will be so helpful to contextualize all the abnormalities that we're going to discuss over the course of the series, and, and hopefully we can apply that to the patients we see. So just going back to looking at normal and abnormal, how would you interpret the, the mitral valve prolapse and mild MR in the context of her physiology? Yeah, so it's true. She may have underlying mitral valve prolapse. It may it certainly be something that we don't know because she didn't really have any pre-pregnancy care and we don't we don't know much about what her echo would look like. But you know, you did describe some things in, on her echo on a transthoracic, which demonstrates that there is normal physiologic process going on. You have a slight left ventricular end diastolic dimension that's upper limit of normal. So we can imagine if the end diastolic dimension is slightly enlarged, you may have a slight mitral annular dilatation. Also, you talked about normal thickness of the left ventricle, which is great and normal LV and RV systolic function. So right away, you know that this mild MR is not because of abnormal geometric changes of the left ventricle, but more than uh, what is expected. If you have bilateral mitral valve prolapse, it may become a little bit more prolapsing because of the increased volume uh, in the left ventricle. And so I am not so worried about her mild MR in the context of her pregnancy physiological changes, because I would think that if her cardiac output and plasma volume and red cell mass and volume and other physiologic changes of uh, the left ventricle do abate, as she is unpregnant or non-pregnant, then the MR quantity and may change. So that's the way I would approach it. Is this something that you would recommend follow-up for after delivery? Or do you just assume it will get back to normal? Yeah, so it's a great question. Yeah, so I think that if you have mitral valve prolapse and it's, it's mild, perhaps follow-up is important. If it's a severe prolapse, that's abnormal. Severely pathologic valves become more pathologic in pregnancy. Uh, and sometimes regurgitant lesions can also give patients signs of heart failure. And so I would definitely say, if you've seen this, it's mild, that's fine. Once you are not very pregnant for about six to eight months postpartum, you may come back and have an echo to see what, it's, what the physiological state of the left ventricle is in that stance, and, and then perhaps make a decision based on, on that. So I wouldn't put too much on it during pregnancy, for, for sure, but definitely follow up needed. Dr. Sharma, along the same lines, we did note that our patient in clinic had a bit of a tricheocardial fusion, and as we talked about in our factor myth, this can be oftentimes a common finding during normal pregnancy. I think what we want to know is, given how common this can be, are there really any red flags you would consider for further workup? Or um, to Natalie's point, is this something that you would follow up after pregnancy? Yeah, so that's a great question. Women who get pregnant can have pericarditis, and it's a challenge to treat in pregnancy because we're worried about not giving these women colchicine since it's sort of contraindicated in pregnancy. So if you have someone who you do an echo on and she's late trimester and she has about a pericardial effusion greater than two millimeters or it's circumferential, does not have a lot of fibrinous material floating in it, the patient on examination really has no complaints and I would really attribute it to physiological changes. Also recognize that about 20% of the women will also have mild trivial pericardial effusion even earlier on in pregnancy, you don't have to be third trimester fluorally pregnant. And this will sort of disappear about two to three months postpartum. So if you have anything that's less than about 10 millimeter, it's you no, know, it's mild or small, it's circumferential, there's no other chamber dilatation or collapse that we see in other signs of clinical tamponade, there's no other physiologic changes, I wouldn't put too much about it. Just wanted to plug in something about, you know, what we do if we see uh, pericarditis in pregnant women, which can be sometimes a challenge because colchicine is not allowed. We would probably treat this patient with a high-dose aspirin if they have signs of pericarditis along with a pericardial effusion because aspirin generally is uh, very um, safe and, and we have used it. We use it in preeclampsia and in preventing preeclampsia. So high dose aspirin of about 500 to 750 three times a day would be okay. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Uh, so for our patient, her echo and ECG show low risk features associated with good outcomes in pregnancy from what you're saying. 
Given the growing role of cardiac biomarkers in assessment and prognosis, uh, and how common it is for patients to have these taken, even just in the ED, how do you utilize and interpret cardiac biomarkers in pregnant patients? Yeah, so it's really important. Now, if you have somebody with pre-existing cardiac disease, it's really important to get a pro-BNP early in pregnancy because that can serve as, or even in the post-non-pregnant state or inter-pregnancy, BNP because that can serve as a baseline. So that really helps. So I think the clinical utility in women with existing cardiac disease is, is really important. And they have looked at values in pregnant women, what is normal, what is abnormal. There's been one prospective study of women with underlying cardiac disease that looked at the level of pro-BNP that was associated with cardiac events. And generally, if your pro-BNP is less than 100, it had less adverse cardiac events. So that's where I would sort of think about. They also looked at another study from the Zahara Registry from Europe that looked at pro-BNP and generally the pro-BNP levels in those women, these are all women with existing cardiac disease, by the way. Um, if your pro-BNP is less than 128 um, at about 20 weeks, then you have about 95 to 97% negative predictive value of having any major complications. So it can be very nicely used um, as a tool to understand the volume status. And typically in patients with underlying cardiac disease, it's a really nice way to serially assess changes. Women with cardiomyopathy, women with cardiac disease, valvular disease, a uh, really, really important tool and should be used very, very frequently. You know, so far, this discussion has been really helpful in identifying normal versus abnormal in pregnant patients. And I always told my interns that, listen, at the end of the first few months, if you can identify sick versus not sick, that itself is one of the biggest things I want them to get out of it. So how do we take it a step further, Dr. Sharma? What tools would you use to further risk stratify patients in a cardio OB clinic to determine like, who, who may be at a higher risk for adverse outcomes in their pregnancy? Yeah, so this is really great. And we have some help in that area, right? So while we can't predict how the baby's going to come out, <laughs> we may be able to predict a little bit about what happens with cardiac decompensation in women with pre-existing cardiac disease. So there are actually uh, three ways to assess it. These are weighted risk scores, just like our chats to vascular score is a weighted risk, risk score. We have three other risk scores, which are sort of weighted, and you get certain points for cert having certain things. And that can sort of predict what is the likelihood of decompensating during pregnancy. And so the ones that we use are the modified WHO classification. There's a Sahara risk score, which is a weighted risk score based on factors that predict poor outcomes. And then there is the CARPEG-2 risk uh, predictors, which is also weighted risk score. The difference between CARPEG and, again, the others is that in CARPREG, you can actually be a little bit more lesion-specific. You also have certain imaging parameters and certain patient parameters. This is the second risk score. There was an earlier CARPREG-1, and this was revised in 2015. This is, again, from a Canadian registry, which is, which is prospective, and it's based at the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital. And lots of different papers on this. Uh, you'll find literature about the predictive value these three risk scores are a must know for somebody who wants to assess pre-pregnancy uh, risk or also cardiac risk during pregnancy about decompensation, sort of a, a rough tool for you to understand. And so really, if I were to look at the patient, I usually very quickly in the top of my brain try to classify it between modified WHO or CARPREG into, in, into their category. So do, does this patient have any cardiac events? What is the functional class? Is it three or four? That means bad. Or is the person cyanotic? Give them a point. Does the patient have a mechanical valve? Give them a few points. Does the patient have systemic LV dysfunction uh, less than 55%? Give them a couple of points. Does the patient have high risk valve disease? We're talking about ES and we're talking about MS. Um, give them a couple of points. We talk about you know whether or not there is uh, pulmonary hypertension. Is your RBSP greater than 50? Give them a couple of points high-risk aortopathy, patient has morphine, patient has a dilated aortic root, give them a couple of points. Does the patient have existing coronary disease? Give them a couple of points. And then did this patient present late? So you can actually then predict based on your cumulative points, a weighted score, and that will present uh, itself with the likelihood of decompensating during pregnancy or having complications. Thanks for sharing those wonderful risk scores with us. 
Phew, I feel like it's a big relief that based on our initial cardiovascular assessment and what we, the limited knowledge that we have on our patients, it sounds like our patient in clinic is likely presenting with some signs and symptoms that could be consistent with a normal pregnancy and normal pregnancy hemodynamic. Although we did happen to perhaps uncover some uh, mitral valve prolapse and a little bit of mitral regurgitation, based on everything we have learned so far, it sounds like this is a lesion which is well tolerated in pregnancy is actually favored by some of the pregnancy hemodynamics that you talked about. But most importantly, why don't we take a moment to review the most common cardiovascular symptoms in pregnancy that perhaps we can expect to occur in women who have underlying cardiovascular disease, and also importantly, when in pregnancy they could present. So what are the most common cardiac manifestations in pregnancy, and what should we, in taking care of these women, really be on the lookout for? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So if you have an underlying woman with underlying cardiac disease, the first few things that you're thinking about is arrhythmias, right? So what is the likelihood of them having an intolerable arrhythmia? Very, very common and probably one of the most common complications to see. To see. And of all the arrhythmias, atrial fibrillation tends to be the most common um, in women with underlying cardiac disease otherwise. So I think it's important to recognize that. So maybe nuance any fit. Um, heart failure decompensation, so worsening LV function, can happen in women with family histories of dilated cardiomyopathy who otherwise are not dilated but may present during the later half of the pregnancy with a peripartum cardiomyopathy. And we know that there is a correlation between women who've had a family history of dilated cardiomyopathy and peripartum cardiomyopathy, as we know that there are certain genetic factors that have been common between these two. So having that assessment, taking a really good pregnancy history, family history is important. But, you know, arrhythmia, heart failure, and then obviously catastrophic arrhythmias, VT, ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, cardiogenic shock, which is the really scary part and the other spectrum of advanced heart failure. The other thing that I want to point out too is people think, or we used to think that adverse pregnancy outcomes are related to just cardiac issues. But I would really encourage trainees and people who are listening in to think about other adverse pregnancy outcomes that are not generally cardiovascularly linked during pregnancy, but have long-term cardiovascular risks or have uh, are associated with long-term cardiovascular risks, such as preeclampsia or uh, gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension or preterm delivery. These are not benign, and they're perhaps discovering or uncovering something abnormal in the physiologic state of, of the woman that can have long-term cardiovascular implications. So always talk about these in your pregnancy history. And when you see a young woman, uh, do ask uh, about these important pregnancy-associated challenges. Dr. Sharma, I am absolutely floored by the amount of information we've covered in a short period of time. I can't imagine a better way to start off this cardio-obese series. And we can't thank you enough for joining us on our journey through the normal and not so normal physiologic changes associated with pregnancy. In the last few minutes, I'd like to take a moment to loop back to how we started the conversation. And that's to highlight just why increasing awareness regarding the care of the pregnant patient should be important to all of us and is essential to improve the care of the diverse communities that we serve. What do you think are the reasons for the rising maternal mortality in the U.S.? And why do you think it disproportionately affects women of different races? Yeah, this is the question. And I think if you're going to move the needle on maternal mortality, if you're actually interested in really making a long-term sustainable change in the lives of these women, we have to focus on prevention because we have uncovered a very sick birthing population. Black women have a pregnancy-related mortality of about three and a half times that of a Caucasian woman in the United States. You see this at all levels of education. And so you have to really ask yourself, what is happening with the health of young women? Recent data that came out in the Journal of American College of Cardiology looked at disparity between rural and urban chronic hypertension in the pre-pregnant population. And the highest spike that we saw in the last few years was in the pregnant population uh, that was 24 to 30 years of age. So these are women who have 
much higher chronic hypertension and who are very, very young. There is significant data from the CDC that looks at the prevalence of gestational diabetes and how it has increased. The prevalence of obesity recognize 41% of the American population is obese. That is the number in 2018. 41% of our population is obese. And so women that are entering pregnancy that are already obese have a much higher risk of developing adverse pregnancy outcomes, heart failure, arrhythmias, uh, which affects their pregnancy outcomes, and dyslipidemia, diabetes, and then advanced maternal age. And women are getting pregnant about a decade later, and are really our health status is catching up to it. So if you're of a woman who has chronic hypertension, it's a risk factor for preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a risk factor for preterm delivery or small for gestational age infant. Preeclampsia has significant comorbidities associated with it and as a risk factor for developing chronic hypertension. So it's sort of a circle. And I think if we really have to make a change, we have to, our health policies and our uh, national policies have to divert attention to the health of all young people, not just women, and prevention. And in fact, primordial prevention. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for sharing those thoughts, particularly, and for sharing with us how not only is sort of cardio B and women's cardiovascular health important, but really highlighting the need for us to sort of expand the care to really the diverse communities that we serve and for people who are disproportionately at risk for really um, worse outcomes. If I could ask a question, I'm wondering what your thoughts are and what, what role do you think that sort of new women's hearts centers have and sort of helping to spearhead some of the either moving forward the research or some of this important work that you're referring to as sort of a graduating um, cardiology fellow and someone who will be moving down to the University of South Florida to try and jumpstart a program like this. What sort of recommendations do you have? And importantly, what is the role of these centers in the diverse communities that we serve? Yeah, no, it's it's such an important question because you have a you have a sense of responsibility, not just to your hospital, but to your community at large. And I think it really starts with developing a system, a service line, where there is an ability to get to these women as early as early as possible, see them as early as possible, and provide a service as early as possible. And to also be then a way to educate your colleagues and to educate other people from diverse teams. And so what we've done is have a multidisciplinary cardio uh, cardioobstetrics clinic where we see patients in in conjunction with uh, the MFM folks, and it provides itself a huge educational opportunity for both cardiology as well as for MFM to learn from each other. So having that sort of set up at, at your center or, or or your centers where you're planning on doing would be great. Uh, but women's cardiovascular health centers have more than just uh, you know providing equitable care. It's a, it's a moral responsibility. It's an ethical responsibility. It's an educational responsibility. And then starting, you never want to boil the ocean. You want to start off small, but start off with championing this locally and then building out into multiple phases. And I, I hope more people do this and we can really, you know, change the trajectory of care uh, for everyone. Oh my goodness. So we have covered a lot today. What do you think, Dr. Sharma, are the top two most important takeaways you hope our cardio nerds community take regarding the care of pregnant patients? Yeah, my top one is be empathetic. These women are not expecting to have a bad outcome. For most women in this country and the world, pregnancy is a normal state. They're already very upset and, and it's, it's a really challenging time for them, not only physiologically, but also mentally, because most of them feel very responsible for for the fetus. And, and so please be empathetic. These women need your help. Many times the focus during pregnancy is on the woman, but once the once she's not pregnant, the focus is always on the baby. And there's a lot of complications that happen in the postpartum timeframe that get lost. And women typically are very focused on the well-being of their child and often really don't take care of themselves. And in fact, there is data that tells us that about 40% of women don't really follow up in the postpartum timeframe with their MFMs. And so trying to be able to get them to be able to follow up because they want to listen. It's just that it's a very difficult time for most of them. Most of them, especially had adverse outcomes. So number one is please be empathetic. These women are not expecting to be sick. It's really unfortunate that they are. And the second is that remember for most, most moms, pregnancy is normal. 
and it's a happy time. And, and I think when we keep that in context with the patients that we see on the floors or in our consult service or even in the clinics, I think we will end up being better cardiologists. Dr. Sharma, one of the things we really want to know is what truly makes your heart flutter about cardio-OB? <laughs> oh, I have palpitations all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, um, just kidding. I think all of it, I think cardiostetrics is an exciting field. It's a hot field. It needs help. It needs people to really provide their expertise and their brain power and their all kinds of power behind it because uh, obstetricians and MFMs and gynecologists are not going to be able to do it on their own. Cardiovascular disease is the largest cause of pregnancy-related deaths in the United States. And if cardiologists don't join join them, I think the cause will, will not be the same. So I think we need to join forces and work together. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Our most heartfelt thanks to you, Dr. Sharma, for joining us enlightening us with your expertise in the growing field of cardio obstetrics. I think we heard your kids in the background briefly, so we really can't thank you enough for taking the time to share yourself with us this Saturday afternoon. Huge thanks to Danny as well for helping put together this script and guiding us through this case. We're looking forward to the whole series. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks so much.